Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Robert Holden and Steve Golubic about the background behind the relationship between the federal government and the tribal community. Robert Holden is of Choctaw Chickasaw descent and is the former deputy director of the National Congress of American Indians, a national tribal government advocacy organization. Within NCAI, he has worked in emergency management and homeland security issues for a number of years. Currently, he works as a tribal liaison with NCBRT to bring valuable training to the tribal governments. Steve Golubic is of Ojibwe descent and is a Navy veteran who served in the Vietnam War. He is also a tribal liaison with NCBRT, where he has worked with us for the past five years. He assumed the position after he retired from federal service, where he served as the first full-time director of tribal affairs in the Department of Homeland Security. Prior to that position, he was the FEMA National Tribal Liaison for several years, serving in Washington, D.C., and around the country, working with tribal governments and tribal nations. Prior to his career in the federal government, he focused on emergency management in the tribal community, working with county, state, and federal governments. Can you talk about the transition between tribes performing emergency management on their own terms? Um, to the more formalized process of emergency management that is in place today? The fact that tribes are involved in sort of latecomers to this, these processes of uh, contemporary times and emergency management is because of the funding, but there are also there's instances where tribes were not comfortable with becoming involved in uh, emergency management, uh, per se. There are cultural beliefs and taboos about certain things, one of them being in, in many uh, tribal cultures in that when you think about things that are catastrophic, that are uh, not good, that can befall uh, people in, in your lands and resources, that uh, you, if you think about them too much, or too often, or worry about them, I guess, if you will, that they it sort of con conjures up a uh, negative energy and that can bring forth those events. Uh, that is something that we have uh, been taught to not dwell on. But um, there are these days many things that we have no control over. Uh, whether it's uh, transportation shipments, uh, those things that might be of a technological nature, uh, what is out there and, and what can harm uh, everyone, including Native peoples. So each tribe wrestled with this idea of how much preparedness do we do? How much do we think about this? What do we have to do? What do we need to do? So tribal officials and, and people who are in these decision-making positions for tribes are aware about emergencies and disasters and how they need to be a part of that solution, part of that process, but also knowing that the type of assistance they've received in the past seem like the assistance uh, that's significant has stopped at the reservation boundaries. So these are the things that tribes have dealt with and uh, how they're uh, coming to terms and 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 needing and wanting to be a, uh, 
part of this uh, process. One of the things that I think is um, important is that tribal people have been doing emergency management. The practices, the non-native way of, of approaching emergency management or what is called emergency management was, was very different. Um, tribes take care of, of their of their tribal communities and their and their tribal people. And the things that Robert was saying about the culture and the and the beliefs and not inviting bad things to to come into the into the tribe prevented a lot of the more traditional tribes and the and the more traditional uh, tribal people and their way of thinking from doing what the federal government calls emergency management. So in in working with tribes over the years, what we have had to do is to approach the tribes and and talk to them in a, in a way that lets them know that we understand what those cultural beliefs and traditions are and we're not trying to do anything that's going to invite bad things into the into the tribe so we use terminology um, that indian country uses in, in order to get uh, the elders and the tribal council uh, members to understand what it is that we're trying to do as as uh, emergency managers to help the tribe protect their lands and their people and then their properties and business enterprises, whatever it happens to be. When we talk about contemporary emergency management, we're talking about the federal guidelines and the programs and policies that the federal government has established to define a term called emergency management. When in fact, Indian country has been doing emergency management, so to speak, um, because they had to do it in order to survive, have, has been doing it forever. So um, moving forward from, from that discussion, um, there, there was not a lot of training that was available uh, to Indian country. Uh, there, there were no specific training programs that were designed to address tribal needs. The assessments that Robert mentioned that were done was a starting point uh, to develop training programs and, and to assist tribes uh, to uh, become part of this overall emergency management program. That started to happen in, in the 90s, and, and it carried forward into the 2000s and, and is, is still moving forward today. In the late 1990s, uh, the Emergency Management Institute, which is the training division of, of FEMA, reached out to Indian country and, and talked about developing Indian-specific or tribal-specific training programs uh, in the emergency management realm. And those programs and training efforts started in the late 1990s and was, it was basically formalized in the early 2000s uh, after 9-11 uh, when the first classes were, were uh, conducted at EMI. Our, our friend Tim Sanders was one of the first instructors for the tribal training program. He was also part of the uh, course development and was instrumental in, in making sure that the word got out to Indian country so that uh, tribes were aware that these training programs were available and that they were eligible to receive this kind of training just like anybody else. Up until that time, and, and still today, all of the federal FEMA training uh, courses that are available, both online and in the classroom, uh, are available to anybody, uh, whether it's a, a state uh, or, or local employee, tribal employee, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, any, anybody in the emergency services community is eligible to take these classes. The difference was that at the, at the time uh, that the states were doing these programs, 
there wasn't a lot of effort to do outreach uh, to the tribal communities and tribal uh, nations to include them in the training. They, because of the way things were then and the way uh, states were conducting emergency management, uh, that didn't happen to a great degree. It's changed in some states and in some parts of the country where uh, tribes are included on a regular basis now. They get all the training notices and, and they are able to attend training along with uh, local state officials uh, as, as part of an overall uh, approach to emergency management. These were, again, another high watermark in terms of uh, uh, tribal outreach and, and, and uh, working with the uh, Indian nations and to providing them uh, the wherewithal to uh, manage their own emergency management programs. There was uh, a group of uh, tribal officials who vetted these courses, who were the instructors, and that's how they were able to come up with ideal courses for delivery to Indian country. So it was uh, quite significant. Uh, another thing that was happening around that this time was um, a series of uh, American Indian Alaska Native tribal government policies that were issued. Uh, that all began back in um, 1990 under the Clinton administration. There was a memorandum on tribal consultation. What it called for was that all the federal agencies to assess what they were doing in terms of uh, working with tribes on providing services programs, as well as an annual report, which is you know, sort sort of fallen that part has fallen by the wayside, but uh, but it prompted you know even before then uh, I think it was EPA maybe ten fifteen years before that had developed a American Indian Tribal Government Policies, but then these other agencies uh, Department of Defense uh, FEMA uh, issued an Indian policy in 1998 Department of Defense and around that uh, following that. And what these policies did would lay out how they would work with tribes. Um, there was some implementation guidance in in some of those policies, but not all of them. Uh, but it went, went a long ways in terms of uh, the outreach communication between federal agencies in tribes. So that was a significant occurrence during that time. So we've talked about the federal programs that have been developed over the years, but what happens if a tribe decides not to participate in the federal, state, or local programs? Part of the concern that tribes have is that they are not granted equal funding. They're not generally included in, in the funding from the federal government through Congress to, to the states. Um, one example is the Emergency Management Performance Grant. Uh, that grant uh, is an annual grant. Uh, Congress allocates a um, certain amount of dollars to be divided between the 50 states. Each state gets a portion of, of that allotted funding, and they are to use it to develop their emergency management programs as they deem necessary. So what that basically means is they'll take that funding and divide it among the, the counties or the local government entities uh, within in their state boundaries. In some states, that does not include the tribes. Uh, the tribes are left to their own resources and are not included in that funding. In order for the tribes to be included in that uh, planning grant funding, uh, it, it would take an amendment to the act itself, and that would have to be done by Congress. So the states, uh, in, in some cases, say, well, you know, Congress didn't say that we have to give the money to the tribes, and so we choose not to do that. 
other states will say, yes, you're you're a government within our our state boundaries, and um, this funding is available for all for all governments within our state. So we'll include you, uh, and they do. So that's. Uh, I, th I think the the main challenge that tribes have, um, if they decide not to participate in an emergency management program and follow the federal guidelines for what it means to have an emergency management program, they they basically uh, are not eligible for any of the federal funding. One of the things that I know Robert's going to want to talk about uh, a little bit later is the Department of Homeland Security funding. When that uh, part of the budget was passed after 9-11, designated money to be used to develop programs, buy equipment, uh, do training for, uh, for everybody for terrorist attack. One of the things that did not happen was that not all of the 500, and at the time 560, uh, two federally recognized tribes, not all of them were eligible for that funding. Uh, because of the guidelines that the federal government established for who is, who is eligible to receive the funding. So even though that funding was made available, uh, majority of the tribes at, at the time were not even eligible to apply for the grant funding. So again, tribes were left to their own resources. Um, one of the questions that I like to ask in, in response uh, to this one is, what happens when states don't include tribes in their emergency management efforts? Um, and I, I think it's a valid question to ask because I mentioned earlier that FEMA talks about having this whole of community approach. And again, they spell it W-H-O-L-E. I spell it H-O-L-E because there are 500 and now 74, 574 federally recognized tribes who are not included uh, to... Um, uh, a great degree in a lot of the emergency management planning, programming, and funding that is available to states and other local governments. So I want to know what happens when the states don't do this. Are there any things that uh, the federal government says, states, if you don't provide this funding to tribes, if you don't include them in, in training programs, you get less money? Uh, the attitude seems to be that, well, if the states give the money to the tribes, they get less. My counter to that is if you spend that money for local governments and you include the tribes, you now have another asset in emergency management that you can use and you can and truly be a partner by definition. And that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Oh, we have to talk to our partners. We have to include our partners. Um, tribes aren't partners. Uh, tribes are an afterthought in a, in a lot of ways. And so if states decided to change their attitude instead of asking the tribes to always change their attitudes and include the tribes in the funding, include them in the training and the, and the programming efforts, I think we'd be a lot farther on and, and uh, we could then talk about many more highlights within tribal emergency management, many more highlights within both federal and state emergency management as well. At this point, um, I want to interject that, you know, it, it seems like there's a lot of um, negative things that we may be bringing up. I mean, it's not that across the board. There are positive things happen. There's some competent and good uh, regional tribal liaisons. There are some good folks at headquarters at FEMA, Homeland Security, 
and, and, and other places who are working quite well with tribes, and there are some positive things happening there. But it just so happens that, you know, there's still a huge amount of inequity, and as Steve stated about in funding, in eligibility. And, and we're, you know, we, we were working through these things and we will continue to work with them. But I guess sometimes it's, it, it's not a matter of even the, the regular regulations or the laws uh, that could change how this, how this uh, interaction is happening and eligibility requirements. Uh, that can be done, you know, by policy. So sometimes, and that's, that's, has not happened to any significant degree when it could. And again, it's not that tribes don't want to participate. It's that they're deemed ineligible in many instances. And I think that's something that, you know, the uh, FEMA as well as other agency headquarters, Homeland Security headquarters and management is, is keenly aware of. So because they have this trust responsibility as an agency and as individuals who are uh, agents of that agency, if you will, that uh, they could and should be finding ways to increase tribal inclusion, whether it's participation, uh, funding uh, into these response mitigation programs and projects. Um, and you can find waivers. You can find ways to modify the requirements. So that's something that we're, we're aware of that could happen as well. But it ha- it hasn't happened. What also happens when tribes are not involved in, in some of these programs is uh, the vulnerability of, of, of this nation. Going back to the Homeland Security Program for a moment, um, there are, you know, one of the criteria for protecting certain places and providing resources to uh, to some jurisdictions is, is what's called key critical infrastructure. That was a term that was used uh, in the formation of the Homeland Security um, Department. And there are many of these key critical infrastructure uh, circumstances on and near tribal lands, whether it's power lines that support the electrical grids. You know, we've seen what can happen when those grids go down just recently, uh, what what turmoil it causes and, and, and people suffer and, and die in some of those situations. There's dams uh, upstream from many communities oil and gas pipelines that traverse across tribal lands. And again, you know, nuclear reactors close by, and there are even missile silos in in parts of Indian country. Tribal police departments and security have been patrolling and protecting sites for decades with their own budgets. States and, uh, and other jurisdictions receive federal compensations for these, you know, similar security operations. There are things that help within the terrorism fight, whether it's domestic or international uh, terrorist activities. Fusion centers, these are state entities that are run for local governments, police departments and law enforcement to um, share that information about what's happening out there and, and, and who's around and dangerous situations so forth. It's a rare instance where tribal law enforcement has access, where they can work within these tribal fusion centers. So again, that's not necessarily a whole of community, as Steve talked about a while ago. What this created is 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 that HOLE, that hole, that uh, the hole in the community of uh, the Homeland Security National Fabric. Uh, one other instance is, is 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 the borders situation. You know, there are several tribes that are located on on what's now the international borders with Mexico and Canada. 
Uh, it is related to uh, Homeland Security emergency management, you know, and, and, and uh, in, in some situations. Uh, but these borders uh, just go back to some of the you know historical uh, uh, information that we shared uh, in the first uh, podcast. But I think it bears mentioning here is that uh, the tribal governments and citizens weren't provided notice or consultation when these borders were created by the federal government. Tribal communities existed in these areas for centuries. Uh, when when these borders were set up without consultation, that meant that tribal citizens and communities that were cohesive now reside on both sides of that border. Many tribal citizens can't get back and forth on a regular basis, you know, whether it's to visit relatives, partake in traditional ceremonies, to vote, to uh, obtaining health care and other activities. Uh, there are situations where native military personnel, uh, people who fought and died in defending this nation, they're prevented from traveling to access veterans' health care, other veteran, veterans' benefits and services to which they are entitled. That's not exactly f fair, and, and that, that, that needs to be changed as well. But there are people caught up in those situations. Um, and again, you know, this failure of equitable programmatic funding to tribal governments for border security is just another gap in, in, in the homeland security fabric. Um, one other thing is that, you know, tribal law enforcement in these areas, they reside there. They know who belongs there and who doesn't belong there. They know the terrain. Many of these folks in, in the traditional uh, uh sense can track anyone and anything if they're provided with adequate staffing and resources. So they have a lot to share and would be willing to share if, if, if they were uh, afforded the opportunity. So when looking at resources of the tribes and resources available, from your perspective, when providing resources to the tribes, how do you evaluate the needs of the tribes when there are 574 tribes and every tribe is different and has different needs? That's a very loaded question, but um, there there is an answer, and and the answer is, in this case, tribes aren't any different than any other uh, government. Uh, the the needs uh, are based on where do we live, what kinds of things are common that happen in our area, how do we address those things, who do we get to respond what kind of resources are available. So you basically do an assessment um, and you, you do it for every tribe, just like you do it for every local unit of government. Um, and in that respect, as, as I said, it's, it's the same. You, you take a look at an individual tribe on um, their, their size, their geography, their, their history of events that have occurred in that area. Um, you talk to the elders about um, the things that they know and the, the teachings of the tribe and, and how those things relate to the, uh, the program efforts that you want, you want to accomplish or, or to start within the tribal government. Um, you, you gather that kind of information as an emergency manager. Uh, then you go through and, and talk about the resources of uh, 
what do we have available on the tribe that we can use to respond to incident A, incident B, whatever that happens to be. And you prioritize that, that list of um, events that, that occur um, and the resources that you have, not just for equipment, but also people. Uh, and funding. It's going to be important. What what kind of support do you have from surrounding communities, uh, <clears throat> other police, fire, EMS departments, uh, hospitals, and then the whole gamut of emergency management planning? Um, it, anything that you can do to find out uh, from the tribe what's important for the tribe. You know, what, what are the issues that they have? What do they want to address? How do they want to address it? And what are the, uh, the equipment needs, the staffing needs, the funding needs? And then you develop plans uh, from gathering that information into a, not just a workable document, but a workable program. Tribes have the same rights, responsibilities as needs as, as state governments and, and the local jurisdictional counterparts. So they need as much as anyone else in their, you know, in, the, in their areas. Um, perhaps even more because of those certain situations that regarding cultural resources, sacred site protection. You would, you know, it's, it, it would seem, and those sorts of things um, that needed more protection uh, aren't can't be written into the equation. So there are the. Um, the schematics, the input into these processes in, in, in the grant eligibility and funding uh, criteria that will never achieve what it should for, for tribes. And that's, uh, the, you know, that's also a fact. Um, there are situations where tribes have the economic resources to become the top flight uh, responders in, in their jurisdictions, but there are also some places where they may not have that uh, capability. But nevertheless, in some areas of the country, they will not just be the first responders, they will be the only responders in some of these uh, uh, areas. So it's it's incumbent for, uh, you know, the federal government to, to reach out and for uh, the people of this country to want to shore up these weak links. Tribes, if they're weak links, it's not because they want to be. It's not because they, they're not trying. They are trying and they're doing the best they can with the resources they have and they're doing a wonderful job, in my opinion. So it, it, it's just, uh, again, it, you know, it's, it, it's a matter of equity. It's a matter of um, how much we can do. Um, I don't like to talk about past mistakes in some instances, but let me, let me give you an example of where there was so many resources, where there was just an overload of resources that came from the Homeland Security Act um, uh, that Congress just opened up the purse strings and, 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 and millions and millions of dollars was poured out in the name of uh, uh, terrorist prevention and, and, and security. It doesn't take much research to see how much was spent on frivolous things, on how much was not spent, and and how much was available, and the tribes weren't in on the party. Uh, let me put it that way. So we didn't have the luxury of of, of having to um, uh, waste money that 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 was going on at the time. So if you know if they had a portion of this, 
we would the whole nation would be better off. But that's just one example as to what is available, what can be available if if Congress and the administration, uh, respective administration, decides to let it happen. So we're looking forward to the day where uh, uh, we'll be equal partners. And because, you know, this is, this is our country, this is our nation as well. This is our homelands. We want to protect it as much as, if not more. That's why um, uh, Native peoples uh, serve in the military in a higher capacity and higher percentage than any other ethnic group um, in, in the country. Uh, they fight and die and will continue to do that uh, on the front lines for, for protection of this nation, for, for all the people. When Native people in their ceremonies uh, ask the Creator for assistance, for guidance, for help, it's not just for our own people, but for everyone uh, who inhabits this, uh, this, this earth. Um, again, you know, I don't want to leave folks with a, uh, uh, the idea that this is a poor us feeling, to feel sorry for us. You know, we know who we are, we know what we deal with, and, and, and it's for the Creator to, to uh, provide for us, and that's what's been happening and taking care of uh, not only us, but uh, everyone. Uh, we have the same response. Uh, rights and responsibilities for security of all the citizens, native and non-native, native, um, and we'll overcome these um, huge disparities and we'll all be better off for it. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Robert and Steve about the challenges that tribal communities face in supporting emergency management and how they face these challenges. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.